Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, today covering the rest of the sixth chief part on the sacrament of the altar. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. And Pastor Bestel, as I said in our setup there, that we are covering the rest of the sixth chief part on the sacrament of the altar. Last week, we covered the first few questions. The first two questions are really related to one another. What is the sacrament of the altar? And then where is this written? And then we also talked about what is the benefit of this eating and drinking. Covered lots of great things in there. Won't rehash all of that for you. Just go back and check out that episode if you missed it in conjunction with what we'll get into here today, which is picking up with the question, how can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Which is really a wonderful progression then from that question, what is the benefit of this eating and drinking? And we talked about how as I explained there, that it gives us these fantastic benefits of forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. And so, uh, well, how can just eating bread and drinking wine do such great things? And that's where we pick up here today. So I'll just read this from Luther's small catechism here for us. How can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Certainly not just eating and drinking do these things, but the words written here, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. These words, along with the bodily eating and drinking, are the main thing in the sacrament. Whoever believes these words has exactly what they say, forgiveness of sins. All right, Pastor Bestel, thus far, Luther's small catechism. There we go again. As you talked about several times last episode, as we began this chief part of the small catechism, you always take us back to, this is what Jesus says, the words of Jesus. And of course, that's central for us all throughout the catechism here, but especially in terms of the sacraments. These are the words of Jesus. And so go ahead and take us away with our catechesis here on how can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Happy to, Sean. The first line of Luther's explanation, certainly not just eating and drinking do these things. Notice the very first thing he does is he says, this is not about rote participation. Rather, it's about faith in the word. And then, as you said in the setup there, yeah, we're constantly pointing back to that. The word makes the sacrament. The word has the power to do great things. The word, the word, the word, the word. It's just constantly always pointing back to the word of God and saying, have faith in this word, because what God promises, God will effect. God will make happen. And if he promises this for you, then simply believe him. There's nothing uniquely 
Lutheran about that, other than sadly, so many of the other church bodies say, no, it's not enough just to believe his word or take him at his word. We got to rationalize it. We got to make it fit with human reason. We got to explain it away rather than simply saying, here's his word, believe it. But that means that when we come to participate in this, it is not just coming for rote participation. We should probably check ourselves as sinners. And this is part of you know, the, uh, what is often called the fourth section, Christian questions and their answers. When we make use of those, as I encourage my congregation, make use of them Saturday night, Sunday morning, and prepare yourself to come to the sacrament. And that's a, just as important of a point. You know, when Luther in the large catechism talks about these things, he spends maybe 30 paragraphs on the authority of the word to make the sacrament. But he also spends a lot of time talking about the idea that we should really wrestle with our own sinful atoms, with our own understanding of saying, am I coming to the supper just out of rote participation, just because that's what I always do? Or am I actually coming as a beggar who has faith in the promise? And those are two very different things. You know, if, if a listener out there goes to the supper every week or every other week just because, quote unquote, that's my tradition, that's not a great understanding, to be perfectly honest. And I'd encourage everyone, wrestle with this. Why are you coming to the sacrament? What do you hope to receive from the sacrament? We don't hope just to receive a tradition. We don't hope just to jump through hoops and say, well, now I've done my task of Christian piety for the week, or now I've looked like a Lutheran for an hour. That's not what it means to be Lutheran, uh, but rather to say, here is God's word and God's promise. And where God makes his promise, I'd be a fool to not trust him. But rather, if he promises me this gift, why would I not take him up on it? This is why we come. So we don't come out of rote participation or because it's just my tradition. In fact, if we have to wrestle with that as individuals and we have to sort of say, yeah, every now and then I do that, that might actually be a reason to say, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't come if that's how I'm thinking of this, at least not today. Now, at the same time, be very careful with that. And Luther talks about that in the catechism, in the large catechism as well, that if you wait to be perfectly prepared if you, uh, you know, in many of our congregations, when you come up for communion, you sort of stand in line in the middle aisle and you wait for the previous table to clear out and then you, and then your table is ushered forward. And so in that line, as you wait, many people rightly meditate on either sins to be forgiven or meditate on what they're about to receive in the sacrament. You know, if you're standing in that line and you say, oh man, I don't feel exactly prepared. That's not reason to go walk back to the pew and go sit down. Luther says, you know, if, just pinch yourself and see whether or not you're human. And if you're human and if you're a sinner, then you need the sacrament. Go to the sacrament. And we'll get into that a little bit further when we get into this question of who receives the sacrament worthily. So we should reflect a little bit more and put more effort, I think, into reflecting on why we should come. And yet that doesn't mean that we should erect these walls of self-righteousness and self-preparedness that prevent us from coming because all of a sudden we think, well, I can't come, or, uh, you know, almost this pietistic notion, right? Why, why did Lutheranism ever get away from having the sacrament every Sunday? In the Reformation era, you had the sacrament every Sunday. All of a sudden, in the 1700s, 1800s, you know, uh, later on in Lutheran history, we sort of got into this mode of pietism that said, oh, no, 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 I can't be 
properly prepared every Sunday. It's too holy a thing. And I would make it less special if I received the sacrament every Sunday. That's a horrible understanding. It is special. And therefore, we should rejoice that Christ is willing to offer it every Sunday because it is the benefit for you, right? You are not benefiting Christ by going to receive the sacrament and saying, look, Christ, look what I'm doing for you, how I'm keeping my faith in this promise. And you should be so pleased with me that I keep coming. But rather, every Sunday, Christ is benefiting you. And if he's going to give you the gift, then why not just take him at his word and say, this gift is for me. Yes, I wrestle with my old Adam, and maybe I'm not perfectly well-focused. And yet, as long as I hear these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, that reminds me why I'm here. Why do you think that the pastor, as he distributes this, says those words again? take, eat the body of Christ, take, drink the blood of Christ for you for the forgiveness of sins. He says it to remind you there and then what it is you are receiving there and then. So we recognize old Adam's weakness and we recognize where old Adam can sometimes get the upper hand, but everything hinges on the word of Jesus given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So it's not the worth of your eating and drinking. It's not whether you are thinking of it just rightly, whether you take just the proper number of bites or, you know, the proper volume of sip out of the common cup. That's not at all what's relevant here. What's relevant is Jesus' word. And where Jesus' word says, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, then you must always take him at his word and therefore come run and receive the sacrament. And therefore, Luther goes on and he says, these words, along with the bodily eating and drinking. In other words, eating and drinking, the truly present reality with faith in what Christ has here promised, as Luther says, are the main thing in the sacrament. So, of course, eating and drinking is part of this because otherwise it would simply be the proclamation of the word, right? Eating and drinking are a very important part of this because Christ says they are. This is for us Christians to eat and to drink. After all, he says, take, eat, take, drink. That's a very important part of this participation in the meal of the New Testament. And yet, Everything hinges on these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. In fact, so important is this phrase. Notice that this phrase shows up in each of the last three questions in this chief part, right? In the second part, if you will, what is the benefit of this eating and drinking, as we talked about last week? Also, how can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? And also, who receives the sacrament worthily? Each one of those parts of his explanation, of Luther's explanation, goes right back to these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So where we eat and drink in faith of that, then by all means, we have exactly what Christ has promised. But notice that Luther doesn't say that eating and drinking makes the sacrament. Christ is objectively there regardless of faith. This is a very important point. Your eating and drinking in faith doesn't make Jesus present. There are some people who unintentionally slide into what is sort of known as receptionism, which means the body and blood of Jesus aren't present until I receive it with my mouth in faith. And therefore, they would argue that someone who receives it without faith isn't harming themselves because their absence of faith means that Christ isn't present. That's not true. If that were true, then Paul would have no reason to warn the Corinthians when he says in 1 Corinthians 11, some of you are eating and drinking judgment upon yourselves because you don't recognize what you're doing with the sacrament. You don't understand it. And yet you are eating this and drinking this to your harm. You can't eat or drink to your harm 
a placebo, right? Think about that. If this were just a water pill, if this were just a memorial meal, if this were just our remembrance of Jesus and he wasn't actually there, then not only would there be no benefit, there'd be no reason to warn of harm. The very fact that Paul warns of harm means there's something there, right? When you take your medication out of your cupboard or pillbox or wherever you have it, and you've got that little orange bottle, that orange bottle has very particular prescription on it as to how to use this. And if you don't use it correctly, you could harm yourself. But that's because there's something in the bottle. If there were simply air in the bottle, if you're simply remembering the medication you once had in the bottle, if it's simply a water pill in the bottle, then you can't harm yourself and therefore just eat and drink away, be happy, be merry. But rather, no, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins, there's something actually there. Christ is objectively there regardless of faith, which is why Paul warns as he does in 1 Corinthians 11, which reminds us again, faith doesn't make the sacrament, it receives the sacrament. Those who partake in faith will receive Jesus. Those who partake without faith will also receive Jesus. Sadly, those who partake without faith will receive Jesus, who is also still remember the glorious God and the just judge. And sadly, they will take it to their harm. Those who receive Jesus in faith of his promises given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, they too will still receive Jesus. And he in his great mercy and faithful to his promises will bless and benefit them. So those who take it to their harm, one more word on this, by the way, that doesn't mean that the person will automatically be condemned. Uh, You know, if you're listening to this and you say, oh man, I did this incorrectly before I was ever catechized. And now my conscience is burdened that maybe I have taken this to my judgment and I can't be forgiven of this. When Paul uses the word in 1 Corinthians 11, the word for judgment there in those verses is the word crema. It is not the great everlasting judgment, but that word is related. It's kata crema, and you can hear the same root word in there. In other words, if you keep doing this to your harm over and over and over again, yeah, you shouldn't expect good things out of that. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to happen on the spot. Think about this. Why does Paul have to tell the Corinthians that some of them are sick and dying? He has to tell them that because it probably wasn't happening the very moment they were eating this. Some people think, oh, it's an empty threat. We've never seen it happen at the altar rail. This is just sort of a religious superstition, or it was just something in the first century. But Paul wouldn't have to say that if it was happening as they were communing. Everyone would know what was going on. But the very fact that he has to point this out to them, this is why some of you are sick and are dying, shows that it was happening after the fact, right? Now, we don't always know where God is bringing judgment, where he's bringing crema or even kata crema. That's not always our place to know, but it is our place to be forewarned and in Christian love to forewarn others. And this is part of the very loving practice of closed communion. Closed communion is a practice of Christian love. It is not a practice of exclusion because we think we're better than someone else. Really, closed communion could be described this way. We teach first, we commune second. Closed communion doesn't mean I never want you to commune with me. It means for the sake of your safety, I want you to learn first what this is all about before you take this. 
It's the same thing our doctors do with us when they're prescribing medication. So why would we expect anything differently when Christ is, in a sense, prescribing and giving the medicine of immortality? And therefore, the end of this section and the end of this explanation of Luther's, whoever believes these words has exactly what they say, the forgiveness of sins, right? This is exactly what people experience all the time in daily life, where they say, you know what, I read this bottle and the label, and it says, take this prescription until empty. And the inference there, the expectation is that when I'm done with this, I'll feel better. I'll be healthy again. And that's everyone's expectation and faith. And guess what? That's, you know, very often exactly what happens, even with man's imperfect medicine. But with Christ's perfect medicine, then when Christ says, eat it, drink it, it's for you, it's for the forgiveness of sins, then there's simply no reason to doubt it. There's no reason to rationalize it away. There's no reason to be hesitant toward it, but rather just to come running in faith as that beggar who says, I cannot believe that I am considered worthy of this feast. And yet if Christ will give me this medicine of immortality, then by all means, I'm going to take it. And that sort of leads us into the next section, as Luther asks about receiving the sacrament worthily. Absolutely. And as we get into that, just to tag on to what you were saying there too, one of the things that I often use in my catechesis and instruction, especially as it relates to close communion and so forth, is I use the medication imagery that you use there, instruction, and then receiving it, that it won't harm us, that we use it rightly. I also use guns in this. And I know you're in Northern Illinois and I'm in Southern Illinois. We're maybe a little more pro-gun down here in the South. So this generally works with my folks pretty well. But I think fits in this sense, right? That, you know, this can be a beneficial tool to be used in hunting or self-defense or whatever it may be in terms of a gun. But I'm not just going to hand that gun to my son or to someone else who is not instructed on how to use that in a responsible way so that they don't harm themselves or others, right? And so what we want to do is not we want to instruct, we want to teach. And so, you know, we'll teach my son how to use a gun properly and respectfully so that he can use it worthily for its proper purposes and not harm himself or others, right? That's what we're talking about here when it comes to the Lord's Supper and what Christ gives to us. And so just with that kind of other image, I think that helps us understand then why we would have this next very necessary question, which is who receives this sacrament worthily? In other words, how can I make sure that I am doing this in a worthy way, in a sense? But I'll let Pastor Bessel go ahead and teach on that here. So this is the question from Luther's small catechism. Who receives this sacrament worthily? Fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training, but that person is truly worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. But anyone who does not believe these words or doubts them is unworthy and unprepared, for the words for you require all hearts to believe. All right, thus far, Luther's small catechism. All right, so we're talking about training. And again, this is why I use that image of, you know, around guns and things of that nature. There's a a necessary training that goes on there. But go ahead and take us away with our catechesis on this, Pastor Bestel. Even up here in Northern Illinois, we got some gun-toting people up here. <laughs> so so uh, I always know that I've got bodyguards if I need them. Uh, but yeah, so they would love your image. They would love your imagery there. Uh, so fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training. Now, before we get to the rest of this, 
pause for a second there. Just because we know that the rest of the meaning says that fasting and bodily preparation don't make one worthy, that doesn't mean that we should run by these words and dismiss them as if they have no benefit. Luther says they are fine outward training, right? Uh, It's amazing to me that just because the scriptures don't require fasting, Lutherans therefore almost dismiss it as if it's a Roman Catholic thing or as if it's something that would make you a Pharisee. Both the scriptures and the confessions say that this is fine outward training, right? Why would you fast on a Sunday morning in preparation for this without it becoming a legalism? You know, if I'm sitting in the service and I'm halfway through the service and my stomach starts rumbling, my stomach is reminding me how little I can even care for it with daily bread and how utterly dependent I am even on God's help for daily bread. And therefore, when he's going to offer me something like the medicine of immortality, how much more is that for me than even the daily bread that he gives to sustain me? And so my rumbling stomach reminds me of my utter need for the simple things. How much more do I need the heavenly things? Right? As uh, Jesus, remember one time, hinted, if I speak of earthly things and you do not understand, how much more will you not understand when I appeal to heavenly things, he tells Nicodemus. It's sort of the same thing with fasting, that fasting reminds us and it humbles us to know this can't even satisfy me, right? I mean, sometimes let's say that we load up on breakfast and we feel satisfied. Maybe we make the mistake of convincing ourselves that we can satisfy our own need. I don't need Jesus because I can do it. Well, where do you think that bread came from? It came from God's daily provisions and his tender hand. But when we fast on a Sunday morning and then our stomachs rumble and things, it reminds us of our mortality. It reminds us of our humility. It reminds us that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, including that word that says, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take, eat, take, drink. This is my body. This is my blood. And so fasting is certainly a beneficial custom for the Christian. Now, what about bodily preparation? Well, what does that look like? That might be something where people say, you know, how do I really prepare my body on a Saturday night? Well, certainly it doesn't just have to be Saturday night, though I think certainly on Saturday night, we can even take the time and the posture of prayer to prepare for these things. But bodily preparation, again, could be something that you practice even in the divine service. Uh, One of the things that I do in the congregation I serve is throughout the divine service, when we are speaking of the incarnate Christ, I kneel at various points in the service. So during the Nicene Creed, when it talks about the idea that Christ became man, I kneel. And in my own custom, I differ than many of my fellow pastors who kneel at this, and then they stand up again when it says that, you know, he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven. I actually continue kneeling all the way through the second article, just as a point of saying Christ remains incarnate. Christ remains true man, true God for you. And even in this very hour, he is here coming as true God, true man, and serving us in incarnate ways that we cannot fathom. And then I'll also kneel again during the Sanctus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? If Christ is coming, then, you know, in a sense, a little bit of law here, I better be thinking rightly because I don't want Christ to meet me apart from my baptism, apart from the forgiveness of sins. 
but rather in all humility, I will bend the knee as Christ comes into this divine service, just as it says in the book of Philippians, that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when he comes in his glory. So in the Sanctus, I bend the knee. And then after the words of institution are complete, here we have on the table, the holy body and blood of Jesus hosted by the bread and the wine. And therefore, I take a moment in the silence of the congregation, just standing and waiting. I take a moment just to bend the knee and to kneel. And these remind the congregation, and they remind myself, what it means to receive the incarnate Christ in this meal as he's prepared it. So bodily preparation can be happening even within the divine service. And uh, how about posture at the table? Right. Think of Lutheran history. Why is it that the artwork of Lutheran history, we have images and woodcuts, for example, of Luther communing individuals, and they're always kneeling at the altar rail. Somewhere along the lines, especially the mid-20th century, Lutherans in America, uh, perhaps it's common down there in southern Illinois, but for some reason where I'm at, all of a sudden in the mid-20th century, it seems like all of the sanctuaries that were being built were leaving out the altar rail. Uh, I don't know if someone, you know, sort of reasoned that, hey, this is the way we can include everyone, including those in wheelchairs. Nobody has to feel left out if they can't kneel or just this is more inviting and there's no quote unquote wall between us and the altar. Whatever it was, they left out the altar rail. But kneeling has always been a part of Lutheran history, not as a law or a legalism or a we're doing this unto righteousness, but precisely because of the confession that the Reformed, when they would commune, they would say, I, you know, there's nothing here. There's nothing here to revere and honor and therefore will stand. And the Lutheran said, no, 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 no. Christ is here in his very body and blood. And, it, you know, it, think about this, listener. If Jesus were to show up visibly tomorrow or even, you know, right here and now, how would you greet him? You'd probably fall to the floor. And yet that's exactly what's happening every Sunday morning is that even though it's invisible to the naked eye, it is visible to the eyes of faith that Christ himself is coming into your presence. And therefore, how are you going to meet him? It's a great confession to see in the congregation. We have it in our own congregation too sometimes where folks who know that they will really struggle to get back up, they nevertheless kneel and then they depend upon someone else to help them up. And the confession is a great one. If I'm coming before my God, I don't care what shame or embarrassment I endure. And nobody, no other Christian who shares this common confession is going to look at you with some sort of reason for shame or embarrassment. But what a great confession. Now, that doesn't mean that standing is sinful or wrong. You can still stand and confess that I, as a poor, miserable sinner, don't even have the strength or the ability to kneel. And yet Christ still comes and he gives me his very self so that I can stand before God. So some wonderful bodily preparation, and we'll continue on that here as we get into the second half of the hour, but just to think about these things, and I think for Lutherans to be intentional about these things, rather than simply dismiss it as saying, well, it's not required, so just do whatever you want to do. That's sort of a poor understanding. I think we do really well you know, now in the 21st century and in a day and age in which people perhaps look down upon the reverence of the liturgy. It's great to, to think about how these individual practices and customs confess the faith. I wholeheartedly agree with that and it makes me think of one of the soapboxes that I often get onto on this show. Uh, as we've been going through the series, I feel like you're doing such a great job with your catechesis. I don't get to get my soapboxes out too much. But uh, 
one of my usual soapboxes that I get in my pastoral teaching and also here on this show is that in the first article, we confess that God has created our body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason, and all my senses, and still takes care of them. And we close that out that for all of that he's done for us in that creative work, it's our duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him. And I often point out it is especially good for us as Christians to thank and praise, serve and obey him with the things that he has created for us, right? That we would worship and praise him and thank him with our body and how we use that in worship in the divine service. And so all of these things definitely are worthy of our thought and consideration of how we confess the faith and how we receive these great gifts for our benefit. Uh, So much more to talk about on this. We'll pick more of that up on the other side of the break with our catechist, Pastor Mark Vessel. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Brady Finneran from Thy Strong Word. Join us to be renewed and refreshed by God's Word and to be pointed to our resurrected Lord Jesus every weekday from 11 to noon, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. as we continue our series, The Catechized Life, with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. And Pastor Bestel, two weeks in a row here now, last episode, and then also in the first segment of this episode here today, you've really challenged us to think about the things that we do in relation to our celebration of the Lord's Supper and what those confess and the theological thinking that is a part of that. And again, I certainly commend that. I think there are great things for us to think about as Christians even the simplest of our lay folks, that we would consider these things. But there's a tension here, and hopefully no one's listening to this show and thinking that we're condemning certain practices. I think you certainly kept us centered in the gospel, focused on Christ, and certainly pointed out, you know, look, we're not saying this is sinful or anything, but they are good things for us to think about and to give consideration, faithful consideration from the Word of God and from our Lutheran confessions on what we're doing here. And so there's probably a few more things to talk about in that end here as well. So go ahead and give us some more things to consider, especially as we consider then receiving the sacrament worthily, again, especially as it relates to the theological implications of what we're doing here. So go ahead and give us some more of that catechesis here, Pastor Bestel. Christian freedom isn't disinterested in Christian training. If you're free, in a sense, you're free to ask the question, why, right? If you're a slave, you don't even get to ask the question. You just do it. And that would be legalism. But in Christian freedom, you can ask the question, well, why? What makes this practice helpful? What makes this practice certainly fine outward training? What makes this practice a teaching moment, in a sense, a moment of confession? So we ought not be disinterested in why these practices have always been the historical practices of the church. We have to maintain the proper definition even of a term that is so commonly misused nowadays, and that's this term adiaphora. It's a philosophical term that wasn't used very much, if at all, by Luther, but Melanchthon brought it into the discussion 
probably 1540s or so as Luther was exiting the scene, Melanchthon feeling the pressure by Rome. And as Melanchthon was sort of the visible leader of the Lutherans, he sort of came up with this idea of saying, you know, we can use this philosophical term adiaphora to say there are certain things that aren't necessary unto salvation. And he was saying it almost in the sense of, therefore, we can give and take a little bit and try to uh, keep Rome from pressuring us too much. And so he introduced this term adiaphora, meaning not necessary unto salvation. And we would say that of our customs. But in the last few generations, unfortunately, it's taken sort of a shorthand definition of simply meaning not necessary. And that's not a very helpful way of understanding this term adiaphora, because it makes people think it's a matter of complete indifference. And that's not true. The customs teach, the customs confess, the customs discipline, the customs keep us humble in the way that they teach and as they teach. So ceremonies teach and discipline. And I think this is the question. What practices are going to prepare you to understand and confess to others what it is you are here and now receiving for you? You know, I've had a lot of members recently coming into Calvary from American evangelicalism. And one of the things that they notice first and foremost is the reverence that our liturgy has, that the reverence with which we handle these things, that we don't just you know, slap the word Jesus on secular stuff and call it holy. We recognize that what is going on here is otherworldly, it's holy, it's sinners before the holy God, but it's also sinners before the merciful and loving God. And that is reason to be very intentional about every custom that we have. And that takes time. It takes teaching. It takes patience among pastors. But it also takes us being willing to really wrestle with things that we've just always been comfortable with. You know, last episode, I mentioned the individual cups. And I said, look, folks, just wrestle with this a little bit. Right? Again, I'm not going to slap the individual cup out of someone's hand. But when they start to recognize, oh, these came from Methodists. These came from people who didn't believe in the bodily presence of Christ. This was an innovation by someone who said, I can just do whatever I want with this because it's just a memorial meal. You know, when you start to think of it that way, you go, well, why would I want to confess that? Now, there are practical reasons that some people use the individual cups, and I have pastorally helped them wrestle with it. For example, I'll have folks that say, you know, I'm, I'm worried that I might spill the common cup. And I say, don't worry about it. I will guide it. I will be careful with it. You don't even have to touch it with your hand. I will simply put it up to your mouth and you can take a sip and everything will be fine. Or I have people who say, you know what, Pastor, uh, I struggle with alcohol. And when I take the individual cup, I feel like I can take the smallest little portion and just go on with that. And I pointed out to them, I've said, you know, I can totally appreciate that. But have you ever thought about the fact that the little individual cups, when you're done with them, everyone can see how much or how little you drank? And so if you're just going to take this tiniest little sip, out of the individual cup. Sadly, because we're all sinners, doesn't the old Adam and someone else say, hey, I wonder why he didn't drink all of his little individual cup. But rather, I've encouraged members of the congregation who might struggle with alcohol, I've encouraged them, just put your lips up to the cup and take the smallest of sips, and only you and I and God know that. And no other communicant needs to know how much you are taking from the common cup. It's actually more private, in a sense, than is the individual cup because no one else sees it. So 
you know, there are things that we can be patient and loving with one another on and say, all right, take your time with this, wrestle with this. I think the individual cup is one of them. But I would never take the position that, in a sense, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Or someone says, well, I can't change because no one else will. And then I'll look like the odd man out. You know, I came to a congregation 14 years ago where I think probably fewer than 10% used the common cup. And with patience and patience and patience, we've taught and taught and taught. 14 years later, I think we're at about 80% of the congregation uses the common cup, even during COVID, right? And why is that? It's because they're not being forced into it by legalism. Nobody's telling them they're more righteous. We're simply saying, think of the history of this. Think of the history that Christ instituted. And then think of the history that the Methodists innovated. Which history do you want to follow? What confession do you want to make? Right? And that's enough for people to go, oh, yeah, in Christian freedom, I can be okay with Christian training and with customs and ceremonies that confess to my neighbor and confess to myself and teach me and humble me and my need for Christ and my benefit in Christ. So when we think of the last part of this last question here in the small catechism on this, notice what Luther says. None of these outward practices make you worthy, right? No one, again, I'm not going to smack the individual cup out of your hand. Or I'm not going to, if you're kneeling, tell you stand up. Or if you're standing up, say, kneel. That's not my place as your pastor. But I am going to point you to faith in Christ and the promises of his word. And Luther rightly concludes this by saying, the person is truly worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Anyone who does not believe these words or doubts them is unworthy and unprepared for the words for you require all hearts to believe. Everything hinges on these, especially those two little words, for you, not to undermine the significance of the words earlier on, this is my body, this is my blood, but it could be his body and blood for our judgment. Instead, he gives it for our benefit, for you. And so in shorthand, I always like to remind my confirmands, what Luther is basically saying here is the person is truly worthy who recognizes that he is truly unworthy and yet can rejoice that Christ gives him invitation every Sunday to come and be beneficiary of these things. So as that then concludes what we have here in the small catechism under the section of the sacrament of the altar, great teaching on all of that. Again, though, as I brought us back from the break on, there's just so much for us to think about and consider here as we consider the Lord's Supper and what we're confessing with this. And so I know that based on your notes in preparation for the show, as you and I prepare for uh, doing the show and so forth, you have a few things that would be really good for us to consider, I think, and I definitely want to bring in here in our remaining time on today's episode for us to consider things that are maybe outside of the small catechism teaching here, but you've already hinted to at least a few of these. They're definitely related to what Luther gives to us in the small catechism here, but things that maybe aren't explicitly covered with a question and answer in the small catechism here, but we definitely want to talk about one of those, as you've already kind of brought out there, might be the issue of closed communion. And these are the sorts of things that in our catechesis lessons, we would teach about as well here. So Anything else that you want to go ahead and bring in there for our listeners' consideration there, Pastor Bessel? Yeah, I jotted down a few things as you're right, as we were preparing for this episode. And, you know, when I go through adult catechesis and confirmation classes, again, there there are a lot of things that people wrestle with with the sacrament of the altar for a couple of different reasons, I think. One, as I hinted at, or as I said earlier, 
the sacrament of the altar is the time in the divine service in which we are most wholly involved, if you will, with both the mind and the body in participation. And because of that, questions come up regarding practice that don't often come up with, you know, where people might have questions about the hearing of the word. You're sort of passive in the hearing of the word and much more active in total body participation. And so questions come up with that. Questions also come up with these things sometimes because of how other Christian church bodies incorrectly teach regarding the sacrament, how that misleads the world, and therefore the world sometimes thinks our Lutheran view is a non-scriptural view. And so it's important to wrestle with those things. So I you know, just jotted down a couple, and you're right, we've hinted at all these, but just to say a few more words on them. Closed communion. There's one again that, but you know, I've been pastor long enough to know that people really wrestle with that term and they wrestle with the understanding of, well, is, you know, this is sort of unloving. But, you know, we've already mentioned that it is actually a very loving reality because one, you are trying to keep people from harming themselves, right? It would not be loving for me to say to my child, sure, go ahead and play with the medicine cabinet. That's just not loving. Uh, they could really harm themselves or sure, go play with the hot stovetop. That's not loving. And so when we know that someone could actually endanger themselves because there is actually something there, there is objectively the Holy Christ there, then that could be for their benefit. Or if they don't know what they're doing, it could be to their harm. There are a couple other reasons, by the way, that when you go and visit in a congregation, Look for some of these things in their communion statement. Most of us have bulletins that might have some sort of a communion statement in them. And there are a couple different things we should point out. That closed communion isn't just for recognition of the bodily presence of Jesus, but it's also the understanding of the unity of doctrine that we confess, right? I think we've mentioned in episodes past that Luther often spoke of the doctrine of Christ as being this golden ring that you can't just take out little segments and do whatever you want with and put the rest back together but rather it's this pure golden ring. The scriptures talk about the unity of the faith and that we are all to be of one mind, St. Paul says, uh, and that those who cause division, we should have nothing to do with them. And so close communion is also to protect the congregation. So notice, we one, we want to protect the person who doesn't really know what they're doing. We want to protect that person. It's, it's love toward that person. It's also love toward the congregation. By saying to the congregation, your unity of doctrine is what Christ intends basically to hold you together, right? We are one in Christ Jesus. And that unity is in the teaching of Christ, is in the doctrine of Christ, is in the theology of Christ. And if we start to allow heterodoxy to bleed into that unity and to be accepted into the unity, even an outward show, it's going to fracture the unity that we have. And so it's loving toward the congregation, just as the first point was loving toward the visitor or the non-communicant. The third point for closed communion, though, would also be that there is such thing as closed communion even within the congregation, right? This is not an anti-non-Lutheran or anti-non-member issue, but rather this is simply an issue of saying there are times when one is well prepared to come forward and there are times when one is not. And that isn't just left to the individual, but it's also left to the pastor to be a steward of. We've talked about before that the pastor is steward of the mysteries. And as steward of the mysteries, he has a responsibility to make sure that those who come forward 
are properly prepared and well-prepared. One of the ways that members can be unprepared is if they're, in a sense, if they're infighting, right? If a member is holding something against another member or just another sinner and has a sort of a hardened heart toward them, uh, then no, they should reconcile with themselves before coming to the sacrament. And thankfully, I, I've never really had this situation, though I was really close one time, but I have heard this from other pastors before where you've got two members who are just at such odds with each other and so impenitent toward one another and so angry toward one another that the pastors actually had to say to them, even though they are members, I'm sorry, you're just not prepared in Christian love toward your neighbor to come receive the things of God, right? Think of uh, Jesus' own words there in Matthew where he says, if you're coming to the altar and you realize that your brother has something against you, leave everything as the altar and first go be reconciled with your brother and then come together. And this is how Christians should understand this. So there is actually closed communion even within the congregation. As for example, we don't commune the littlest infants and we don't commune little children. And we don't even include those family or friends or relatives of a member, right? You know, you, sometimes when you go to uh, something like Costco or Sam's Club, you get to benefit by being a family member of a member. So the card-carrying member can get you into the store and then you can buy using their card. That's not it with the communion and fellowship of the church. And so for unity of doctrine, for a life of repentance and forgiveness, all of these things are good, beneficial, scriptural reasons to rejoice in closed communion. And therefore, we can do so with a very clear conscience and not worrying what the world thinks about that or what other Christian churches think about that. We know what Christ thinks about that, that we are doing these things in faith toward God and in fervent love toward one another. Uh, another bullet point that I thought would be important to bring up at this time, you know, we have a lot of modern innovations toward the idea of safety with the supper, as if, again, Christ did not know what he was doing when he instituted it. We've already talked about individual cups or uh, individually packaged communion sets or virtual communion. Uh, these things really need to be rethought. And I would encourage members and pastors alike to really wrestle together and talk through these things. Why are we taking up these innovations as if they're necessary when we have Christ's word that this is for you and it's for your benefit? It's not for you and then play, in a sense, Russian roulette and find out whether or not it's for your benefit. No, this is always for your benefit. And so many of the safety innovations don't have to be taken. Now, I can sympathize with a couple because the bread and the wine are still the bread and the wine, right? Roman Catholic transubstantiation is not our confession. And so the bread and the wine continue to be bread and wine. And we sinners do struggle with bread and wine sometimes. You have the alcoholic who struggles with wine. You have somebody like in my boat. I don't know how few pastors there are in the Missouri Synod, but I'm one of them who has celiac disease. And my doctors say, hey, you can't have gluten. You can't eat bread. And so how do we approach these things? I think real briefly on this, again, for the one who's struggling with the alcohol, it's the quantity that a pastor can point him to and say, you know, the Lord institutes this with wine, and it's not our place to try and reason our way around that and say, all right, I'm going to use grape juice or non-alcoholic wine, whatever that is. I don't even know that that's actually wine. But rather than playing with the substance and then calling into question either in the communicant's mind or in other members' mind, keep that in mind. In Christian love, 
We have to also be concerned about those who commune around us. And if they see that we are getting something different, it might lead them into questions. Well, wait a second here. How come my wine is red and their wine is white or whatever that thing is? Are they getting something different than me? And so we don't want to cause a stumbling block with them either. So I would say to the one who struggles with alcohol, I can sympathize with your struggle that it is real. And therefore, understand that Christ never quantifies how much you need to swallow in order for it to be a benefit to you. So again, make use of that common cup and in the privacy of the common cup, as opposed to the individual cup being seen by everybody, what you consume and what you don't, but rather in the privacy of the common cup, just put your lips to the rim and partake of what comes to your lips and know that Christ has there blessed you. Same thing for those of us who struggle with gluten. It is bread. It is still true bread, even though it is also hosting the body of Jesus. And therefore, I can sympathize that people might struggle with it. But rather than going to something completely different, first ask your pastor to do this. Pastor, may I please take home an unconsecrated wafer and break it up into pieces in the privacy and comfort of my own home? If I you know, upset my stomach or whatever issues you've got with this, then I can handle it in the privacy of my own home because it's unconsecrated. It's just bread. It hasn't been used in the divine service. And allow me just to go home and see what portions I can handle. Right now, I'm talking with some technicalities here to those who know these things and are sensitive to these things. Gluten, you know, folks with celiac disease know that the magic number is 20 parts per million, and that's supposedly what's going to harm us or not harm us. And, you know, my doctors have talked about this, that, look, you could take a wafer, a whole wafer, and it shouldn't harm you. But if someone's extra sensitive, just take a fraction of a wafer. We do that in our congregation. I only take a half a wafer on Sunday morning, and another person in the congregation who has celiac disease takes the other half of the wafer. The quantity doesn't matter. There's nowhere in the scriptures that says you have to take one complete little circular round wafer, right? I mean, that, that's completely arbitrary as to the quantity. And so just take a portion of it and, uh, you know, take that unconsecrated home with you, try it at home and prove to yourself, you know what, I can actually do this and it's not going to harm me. And if it's not going to harm you when it's just bread, then my word, how much more when it's the body of Jesus? Okay, so there are ways to go around this and to help our anxiety and our mind understand that Christ knows how to care for me even better than I know how to care for myself. So I would start there and I would work with your pastor very carefully and closely on these things rather than making a declaration that if you don't do it this way, pastor, that I'm not going to commune. Well, that's not helpful to you and it's certainly not helpful to the pastor. Rather to wrestle with these things together and to say there are ways that we can do this without having to reinvent the sacrament. Uh, lastly, I would say, you know, the other thing we should talk about is understanding the sacrament as more than an occasional inclusion. There are a lot of folks that think that the high point of the service is the sermon. And as long as we have the sermon, the sacraments can sort of come and go. Uh, it's sort of an extra, you know, an occasional extra, if you will. It's a fringe benefit. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that people think this, well, first of all, you do have Luther at times talking about how if we're not going to have the preaching of the word, there's really no reason for us to gather together at all anyway. But I think we have to look at the context of that a little bit more carefully and understand that that's true when we're talking about matins, when we're talking about vespers, when we're talking about compline. 
not just when we're talking about the chief divine service, right? But with the divine service every Sunday, Luther rightly, and we ought to follow Luther in this, does not try to pit word versus sacrament. But really we have, and we can get into this a couple episodes from now when we're sort of done with the catechism, I'd love to talk about the liturgy a little bit. But really we have a service that has two pillars, the pillar of the service of the word and the pillar of the service of the sacrament. And everything is sort of built around that. And I'll even give you a little bit of a visual aid about that when we get to that episode. But as we have one climactic point that is the gospel and the proclamation of the word, so also we have the other climactic point, which is the service of the sacrament and the sacrament itself. I tend to think in Lutheran history, because of pietism, we learned incorrectly about the height of significance regarding the sacrament. And we learned to see the preaching of the word as somehow more important because, as we rightly say, the word makes the sacrament. Well, that's true. But that doesn't mean that the sacrament is somehow just an extra, you know, sort of third wheel and the word is intended to do everything by itself. And then every now and then we'll just occasionally have the sacrament. But Christ gave his word specifically to give the gifts and make the gifts of the sacraments for us. And so, you know, even in our hymnal history has been a problem, isn't it? That when you look at the old uh, Lutheran hymnal, which many of us love, that old TLH from 1941, and I love that hymnal, but it was not helpful to have the first service listed to be the service, the, the Sunday morning service in which you basically had the divine service setting, and then it cut off without communion. And then it ended. And because that was listed first, page five, many people assumed that that was the standard. And then, oh yeah, every now and then page 15, where now you have occasionally, you have the service and attached communion onto the end of it. That's not helpful. And rather we would do very well to rejoice that as often as Christ offers this, then we may in great joy and in a clear conscience, we may take him up on it. And we may say, if you are going to give me this gift with this promise that this is your body and blood given and shed for me for my forgiveness, then because of those little words for you, my heart is going to believe that and I'm going to run to the altar and rejoice in partaking of and dining with my God and with my fellow Christians. Thank you so much for bringing us back to a great focus of Christ for you. That's certainly the focus and hope of our Christian faith. Great thoughts for us to consider as well in there, as you covered so many wonderful things for us, both in what Luther has for us here in the small catechism under the sacrament of the altar, and then also definitely very related things as well. Thank you so much, Pastor Bestel, for your catechesis there. That wraps up for us the sixth chief part of Luther's small catechism. And we talk about the six chief parts of the small catechism. But there's more of the catechism, often called maybe kind of part two, if you will, or the second section of the small catechism, which will include the daily prayers and also the table of duties. And then, of course, coming up on this series as well, Pastor Bestel talked about how we'll talk about how all of this catechesis relates to well, how the catechetical life plays out in the liturgy. And so we certainly want to talk about that as well as we gather together as Christians. So much more to come on this series, The Catechized Life, as we continue progressing forward here. Thank you for stopping by today, dear listener. And until next time, keep confessing, church.